You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. that used to seeing old girls in Irish books or films. 
If you happen, by some magic trick, to become a teenage girl in an Irish novel in the 20th century, you can be guaranteed you're not going to have a good time. So don't do it. And that's actually, that's even if you appear there at all. When we do encounter teenage girls in Irish fiction, we're also usually encountering a story of crisis and trauma. So something like Edna O'Brien's Baba and Kate in the Country Girls, although it's revolutionary in its time, it's, those girls are also subject to sexual predation rather than a kind of rebellious transition. And of course the novel was banned for the girls' expressions of desire. If you're a teenage girl in the 20th century in an Irish novel, you're probably going to get pregnant, like Sharon in Robbie Doyle's The Snapper, and that pregnancy might even be as a result of incest and abuse, like Mary and Edna O'Brien's Down by the River, which is based on the X case. Film representations carry on this theme. Um, all of those texts, I know they're not children's texts, but that's where we kind of locate the adolescent girl primarily in the 20th century. All of these texts situate adolescent girlhood as an anxious space, lacking protection, subject to invasion. And of course, we know from Irish history that that's often the case. But that's not the only story. Jane Elizabeth Doherty is a scholar, and she's researched the invisibility of girlhood in Irish fiction. She argues that while Ireland boasts some of the most notable examples of literary boyhoods, and Joyce's a portrait of the artist as a young man as the exemplary Bildungsroman, she argues that narratives of female development are rare and obscure. However, despite her claim that literary girlhoods, Irish literary girlhoods are rare and obscure, and despite an overwhelming association between girlhood and trauma, what I'm arguing is that late 19th century and early 20th century in Ireland tell a different story. So rather than being rare, narratives about Irish girls are numerous. We're looking in the wrong places, though. We're ignoring the popular um, and the forgotten texts that were bought and read by girls of the period. So when we look at what girls were actually reading and actually buying, we find a huge variety of stories and kinds of girls. So when we look at that moment, we see a proliferation of fiction by Irish women writers, featuring girl readers, and featuring the development of Irish female characters. And those girls are not characterised by crisis and trauma. The other stories, they are becoming students, artists, writers, landovers, landowners, even revolutionaries. They're rebellious, they're expressive, and they take up space. So the issue isn't that those narratives don't exist. It's rather that the Irish literary canon fails to take account of them. Now, what's fascinating about the late 19th century is that the idea of the adolescent girl was relatively recent. So the teenager becomes a phenomenon in the 1950s, as we know, bringing with it its own specific culture. And the tween has become a category relatively recently. Um, so in the late 19th century, the girl becomes a distinct category. She's called the new girl, or the modern girl, the girl of the period, or just the girl. And she is a figure, embodies the changes that femininity was undergoing in late 19th century society. And femininity was undergoing, and girlhood, adolescent girlhood, was undergoing specific changes due to particular socioeconomic changes. So girls are staying in school longer. 
um, that because of compulsory legislation, compulsory schooling legislation, university education is newly available, there's new career opportunities opening up to young women in fields such as nursing, sectarial work, teaching. What's important about all of this is that girls are spending more time in a transitional space between childhood and the, the restrictions that are associated with marriage. So the space between childhood and womanhood starts to open up in the period. That's, and I'm, I'm, when I'm, I'm talking about um, Britain here, but similar socioeconomic changes are happening in Ireland. So from the 1860s in Ireland, the number of establishments focusing on secondary education uh, increased both for Catholic and Protestant girls. In 1878, it's an important act, the Intermediate Education Act, and that act established a series of public, exam public examinations and provided prizes and certificates. And it paid schools for the results of the public examinations. But significantly, and I'm going to quote from the act, it extended the benefit of the act to the education of girls. Now, that extension was the result of lobbying and pressure by feminist educational reformers such as Margaret Byers, Isabella Todd. And the result of this is that girls are permitted to compete on an equal level with boys in state examinations. So importantly, girls are permitted the same opportunities as boys, and the number of girls competing in those examinations increases quite dramatically in the last decades of the 19th century. As a kind of aside, what's interesting about these socioeconomic developments, the increase of uh, access to education for girls in England, is that you get this proliferation of school stories, stories set in girls' schools. But that doesn't seem to happen in Ireland. We're not getting stories about Irish girls in Irish schools. Um, so it's not really until Kate O'Brien's The Land of Spices that we're seeing an Irish convent school featured. One of the writers that I look at, Elsie Mead, she popularises the school story, but she, her Irish girls are going to English schools. Um, so that's interesting to me. I haven't quite worked out why that is, but I will by the time the book is published. <laughs> um, as Sally Mitchell's seminal study, The New Girl, Girls' Culture in England, 1880-1915, Sally Mitchell identifies, and this is a quote from her, the concept of girlhood as a separate stage of existence with its own values and its own interests was beginning to take shape in the 1880s. As she outlines, the term is marking a distinctive category of girlhood and the creation of a separate culture of girlhood. And that's primarily manifesting itself through print. So you can see here there's a proliferation of newspapers, periodicals aimed at girls, which all like reflect and produce the girl of their titles. And so much fiction is being produced. Again, a world of girls, a girl's idea, no ordinary girls. Um, so publications are abounding for the girl. And the fiction is in genres from the school stories I mentioned to the adventure story, um, from sentimental romance to career and university novels. And what's interesting about that is it's offering girls a wide variety of um, different potentials for their lives. I should also say that it's also socialising girls into acceptable modes of behaviour for the time, but there is this real exciting potential also for girls. They're not, the texts aren't completely revolutionary, but they're offering increased variety of representation. Girlhood and the girl, 
they're at this point in time, what the girl means and what she's associated with are new modes of being. And she becomes the girl, when you see the word girl, you're also thinking about ideas of transition, transformation, modernity, and a certain degree of rebellion. So this new girl is occupying a really interesting position. She's between child and woman, between home and marriage, and between a generation that did not have her opportunities and a generation whose opportunities were yet to be imagined. Now, what I'm finding in my research is that Irish writers are actually instrumental in producing this girl's culture. Most notably, a writer called L.T. Mead, who's an extremely popular writer in the 19th century. How many of you have heard of L.T. Mead? Amazing! More than most of my audience. <laughs> um, so Mead is a champion of girls, their writing, their education. In 1906, she's described in the periodical The Saturday Review as the queen of girls' bookmakers. But that wasn't intended as flattery. The, the anonymous reviewer excoriated her most recent four novels. The review resulted in a plethora of letters to the editor. It's a really fascinating exchange, actually. I'll show you the letter from the, some schoolgirls who wrote in about the review. Um, so Mead also, there's also an indignant reply from Mead herself. Um, and this, I love this impassioned letter of defence from these Dulwich schoolgirls, and Dulwich was where she lived who proclaimed, we, her girlfriends, will not stop reading her books. The writer of the most thrilling stories, the stories which we all love. And you can see the editor's reply. It says, Dulwich Mrs. Mead is a local celebrity, a thing beloved of the suburban mind. I know. But Mead is beloved by girls, and she's a popularizer of girls' culture. This is a really interesting example of a culture that's at odds with adult expectations as well. Um, I love the fact that the girls who are writing in are, they're all 13 years old. Now, Mead is a really interesting case study. Um, if you're transported back in time to this moment of the early, tw early 20th century, Mead is as famous to an audience as J.K. Rowling, and both of them share Double, initial, double initials and a penchant for school stories. Amid publishes, she's extraordinarily prolific. She publishes about 300 novels during her lifetime. She averages 12 a year. Um, and she's writing in every genre imaginable. Romance, crime fiction, sensation. She's actually publishing crime detective fiction in the same periodical that Sherlock Holmes stories were coming out in. She actually even invents some genres. She invents the medical mystery. Um, Beth Rogers, who's done fantastic work on Mead, she's written, no LT Mead, no diagnosis murder. <laughs> and her popularisation of the school story influences Ida Blyton, who in turn influences J.K. Rowling. So, without Mead, would there be Harry Potter? <laughs> Mead is instrumental in the girls, in the, this emerging girls' culture. There's, there's two um, contemporary... Uh, articles on her, portraits of celebrities at different times of their lives. Her first school story, which was published in 1886, A World of Girls, sold 37,000 copies, which is, is extraordinary at the time. 
Um, and Mead is regularly topping polls of girls, of favourite writers for girls. Mead was, she was born in Bandon in County Cork, I'm from Clannacilty, so she was, she's a local girl. Um, and she was the daughter of an Anglican clergyman. Um, the family moved to a more rural parish then between Bandon and Kinsale. And she lived there until she moved, in, until in her 30s, she moves to London to take up a writing career, where she becomes a professional writer. And she remains in England for the rest of her life. Um, and she dies in Oxford in um, 1914. So her, her first school story, A World of Girls. And this, at Atalanta, is one of the really popular periodicals for girls. And she's the editor of this, which is extraordinarily important. And she's also contributing to other periodicals for girls, such as Young Woman and Girls' Realm. She's outspoken on the themes of girls' education. And she was also a mem member of the Feminist Pioneer Club, which publicly supported women's suffrage. <coughs> in an article for Girls' Realm in 1900, she recalled the dawning of a feminist consciousness even in the wilds of West Cork. She says, the movement for the emancipation of women, it is true, was little more its infancy in those days. But even to the remote shores of the Atlantic-bound coast of the south of Ireland, it penetrated by murmurs and whispers. Anyhow, it disturbed the air, and there was one girl in an old rectory who was all too ready to take up what, was, what it was in those days thought the spirit of revolt. And that spirit of revolt, you find that resonating throughout her girls' school stories. Irish girls feature prominently in her fiction. Those are just some of the titles um, about Irish girls. Peggy from Kerry, the wild Irish girl. Um, in Atalanta, in that periodical she edited, she's also featuring, she's also publishing stories by Irish writers, such as Catherine Tynan and fellow Cork writer Mrs Hungerford. Catherine Tynan you probably know as a poet associated with the literary revival. But actually Catherine Tynan, again, was extremely important in girls' culture at the time period, publishing hundreds of novels for girls. Um, and Tynan also was the author of a monthly column in, again, one of the other popular youth magazines called The Monthly Packet. And Catherine Tynan's column is called The Girl's Room. And it's a wonderful column. It's really chatty and really encouraging of its readers. She asks her readers to centre in primarily their poetry. And some of her colleagues are taken up completely with like writing advice for her readers. So she's really, both Mead and Tynan are really encouraging of girls' participation in creative pursuits. Um, Tynan herself, Tynan herself had been encouraged by another writer who I'll come to in a moment called Rosa Mulholland. Um, and I've been in um, some archives this morning looking at letters from Tynan in which she's talking about Roosevelt Holland's influence on her. So there's this really lovely community of writers all encouraging and publishing each other, all Irish, um, which I'm finding fascinating. Tynan also knew Mead. There's a lovely letter where she talks about going for tea with Mrs. <coughs> Mead, who's become a, a special friend of hers. She goes there with Willie Yates. I just love that idea of Tynan and Yates and Mead all having tea together. Love to listen to that conversation. Um, so Irish girls, as I said, populate many of Mead's novels. Um, and their representations negotiate a range of assumptions and associations surrounding Irishness and girlhood in the period. 
Now, the Irish girls in her novels, they, they owe a lot to late 19th century stereotypes of Irishness. Um, so particularly if you know Matthew Arnold's Celt, the sentimental, feminine, emotional Celt, almost describes her girls. Um, and they, her girls all speak with this kind of exaggerated, brogue stage Irishry. They're also wild, rebellious, frank in speech, unruly in manners, and their emotions, which I'll come to in a moment, their, their, their emotional affect is extraordinary. Um, and their English counterparts in the schools that they go to, they're both attracted to them and repelled by them because of this kind of taking up of space that we find. Their Irishness tends to present them as spectacles. Um, they're really visible presences in the schools through their clothes, their speech, their accent, and their stories that they're constantly telling of, of home. And what's interesting about these Irish girls is that they're not always assimilated into the English schools. They're disrupted in the schools, and at the end they either leave or they're actually changing in some way the culture of the school. And I'm going to give you some examples. Um, so Mead's 1897 novel, Wild Kitty, concerns the arrival of Kitty Malone, who's a wild Irish girl. And she arrives in an English school, and she's been sent there by her father to be taught manners, which never happens. <laughs> she's described in the novel as very pretty, very tidy, very, very pretty, very untidy, very overdressed. Um, and I'm not going to read through this, but this is just an example of the kind of exchanges uh, between the, this kind of stiff English girls and the emotional Irish girls. Also, these Irish girls have these amazing wardrobes. They're all really overdressed, but there's something kind of fascinating in the prose. The prose in these novels is kind of fascinated by the girls' clothing. Um, her extensive, Kitty's extensive wardrobe of clothes is considered by the English girls and their mothers to be too showy and inappropriate for a girl of her age, but she's fascinating to the schoolgirls for this. She's frank in speech, unruly, emotional, vain, but, and the novel is constantly telling you this, she's very pretty. <laughs> but what's interesting about these novels is Mead doesn't condemn her for these traits. And Kitty never learns any manners in the course of the narrative. She remains untamed, as she predicted earlier in the, in the novel. Um, Kitty had said, they call me the wild Irish girl at home, and the wild Irish girl I'll be to the end of the chapter. <laughs> but now, Mead is quite a formulaic writer, so that formula is repeated in so many of her school stories. So you get this Irish girl that arrives in the school, repels and tracks her English counterparts, a crisis in the plot is stimulated, usually by an English schoolgirl behaving dishonourably. The Irish girl gets caught up in it. And it, in the end, all is revealed, and the Irish girl goes home. <laughs> in the plots of the novels, the Irish girls initially, they're the ones that initially seem to break the rules of the school in their excessive dress, their garrulousness, their emotionality. But instead in the novels, it's, it's an English girl who's actually really violating the codes of the school. And it's usually to do with cheating or borrowing money or plagiarism. Um, um, or, or like money seems to stimulate lots of the plots. Ultimately, it then in these novels, the rules of the Irish girls break become inconsequential as the girls are instead to embody the characteristics that really matter. Truthfulness, integrity, honour. In fact, they're... In a weird way, their unruliness, their excessiveness, is part of their, it's a marker of their integrity. 
and their rebellion and their wildness is an expression of their kind of authentic girlhood. They remain untouched by their English educations. In this 1892 novel, Bashful 15, Bridget, the girl in Bath, is told by a servant, you ain't the sort for school. If I make bold to say as much, you ain't never been brought under. That's the first thing they does at school. Under you must go whether you likes it or not. But under, these Irish girls certainly do not go. Sue Sims, in her introduction to the Encyclopedia of Girls' School Stories, observes, this is her observation about school stories, she says, although there are plenty of attractive madcaps and harem scarums in the traditional school story, they always incur authorial disapproval for that quality. But this is manifestly not the case in Mead's work. And in fact, the wild Irish girl's qualities develop in positivity as the narrative progresses. Um, as Janet, who's, she's the dishonourable English schoolgirl in that novel, she observes when she visits Bridget in Ireland, how splendid Bridget O'Hara is, such a figure, such a face, such a bold, brave spirit. There's something about her which, if the fates were at all fair, even I could love. Now the novels are also, they're obviously setting up a dichotomy between wild Ireland and civil, wild Ireland and civilised England. But they complicate a kind of an easy dismissal or taming of Ireland's wildness that similar novels insist on. And as I said, the Irish girls all share this distinctive emotional effect. Kitty in Wild Kitty, she's quick to tears and quick to laughter, storms out of rooms a lot. And again, she's both distressing and appealing because of this, because of she can express herself in that way. Uh, one girl says, we English girls are not accustomed to your sort of way. We are quieter here and more reserved. Um, British and Bash Bashful 15 did everything in dramatic, excitable style. She was all on wire, scarcely ever still, laughing one minute, weeping the next. Now, of course, those excessive emotions, again, are those of the Matthew Arnold stereotypical Celt, um, who just, who embodies emotion, sentiment, and a lack of English sanity, which justifies colonial occupation. But in these novels, the Irish girl's emotions works in alternate pathways. They create attachment, community, and visibility for the adolescent girl. And the presence of the Irish girl stimulates her classmates. The girls felt that a volcano had got into their midst, an explosion was imminent. This feeling of electricity in the air was very exciting. Stirred the somewhat languid pulses of the schoolgirls. Surely, such an impulsive, such a daring, such an impertinent, and such a bewitching girl had never been heard of before. As one schoolgirl says of Kitty in Wild Kitty, she will make a revolution in Middleston School. Now, intriguingly, in Mead's work, Ireland becomes the space of that new girl I mentioned, that new category of girlhood associated with transition, transformation, and rebellion. So Mead situates that in Ireland, and she's not alone. Mead's important for me because she champions and she legitimizes the teenage girl, but I'm not calling the, the girls teenage yet, the adolescent girl in her cultures. She's highlighting the disruptive potential of teenage girls and her emotional possibilities for creating communities of change. And that girl is at her most disruptive when Irish. Another Irish schoolgirl, right, that's another one of Mead's Irish novels, The Rebel of the School, in which the girls form a secret society called the Wild Irish Girls. Um, another schoolgirl, yet one that appears in a very different setting to Mead's popular novels. 
So this schoolgirl is even more linked to revolution. So in 1896, a serialized story, A Captain's Daughter, appears in the nationalist publication Shan Van Vucht. Now Shan Van Vucht was Ireland's first advanced nationalist publication. And it's also one of the first periodicals to be edited by women, Alice Milligan and Alice Johnson, Anna Johnson. A Captain's Daughter is written by Alice Milligan, and it features the protagonist Millicent O'Brien, who is, at the beginning of the story, freed from an English boarding school. Her patriotic sympathies are connected to her willful rule-breaking in the English school. And she's really interesting. In so many ways, she's a sister to Mead's wild Irish girl. And she's from a similar socioeconomic background to them. They're all Anglo-Irish girls. Yet she's way more politicised. Millicent, when she'd been a month in the school, broke the record. She broke, in fact, every rule, and there were 15 of them, all in one day. It was forbidden to speak in the dormitory after the gas went out. Millicent spoke till midnight. The others had a good time of it. They broke no rules, but lay still and listened. And, and this, she says this actually with her foot on the neck of one of the English girls who's lying in bed. So I'm going to relate all the battles in which the Irish beat the English so that you won't say your history lesson so proudly for the future. <laughs> um, however, in Milligan's story, this, the schoolgirl, not, she not, not only does she disrupt the English school, but when she comes back to Ireland, she encounters and influences a band of revolutionaries. Um, she professes her rebel heart to them. But she discourages them from immediate violence, which she knows will lead to their death. Instead, what she does is she offers them her brother's books about artillery practice and tactics. And she tells them, these books will tell you how to study the hillsides and the glens and the rivers and the railways with a view to knowing what to do if the enemy was advancing. You can go around on expeditions in the style of military manoeuvres. As far as I can see it, it was also the want of some simple knowledge and practice of that sort that failure came about, not for want of courage and pluck. And revolutionaries listen to her. <laughs> What's really interesting about that periodical and the serialized stories in it is that it gives space, and it's, this is not a periodical aimed at girls, but it's giving space, agency, and political influence to young girls, especially in the serialized fiction, and many of that, many of that is written by Alice Milligan. And these stories position girls at the crux of national unity. And they stress the girls' involvement in nationalist politics, although it, is, it tends to be primarily through domestic and romantic activities. But you get moments like this. <coughs> Rosa Mulholland, who I mentioned earlier, who influences Catherine Tynan. Catherine Tynan knows Mead and the in the girls' school stories. Rosa Mulholland is, she's a contemporary of Mead, but Rosa Mulholland and Mead don't seem to interact. Um, but she's also an extremely popular novelist for girls. She's a Catholic novelist. And she advocates kind of staying in Ireland and writing for Ireland, not selling yourself out to this, the, the, kind of the, the money that's in English publishing. Even though she herself publishes in English periodicals. She was encouraged by Dickens. And the periodicalite artist Millet uh, illustrated her early poetry. And she knew Yeats. Yeats included her story of The Hungry Death in his collection, Representative Irish Tales. And Yeats describes her as the novelist of contemporary Catholic Ireland. Her novels, again you can see this predominance of the use of the word girls in them. Her novels don't feature schoolgirls, although there's lots of 
art, girls training to be artists, because that McCollum's um, early life, she had, she had she tried to become an artist. So they don't feature schoolgirls, but they're they're really interesting in terms of their representation of girls' psychological development. So she's looking at girls of a slightly older age, um, slightly coming into that position of womanhood. Um, what she tends to do in her novels is she portrays a girl who's born abroad um, with Irish heritage, who inherits money from Irish relations, which allows her to return to Ireland. And when the young, young girl, she's usually about 18, when she returns to Ireland, all of these interesting opportunities open up to her. Of course, she's got lots of money, which helps. But in these novels, the girl engages in modernization of some kind. Land or agriculture, the girls are reforming agricultural practice in some of her novels. Um, in one of the novels, the girl, the girl open, reopens a factory and gives employment to lots of local people. Um, in one case, in a girl's ideal, the girl opens a medical laboratory <coughs> and finances it. So the girls in her stories are not, they're not as overtly unruly as in Mead's or Milligan's uh, novels. But they're pushing against the assumptions that girls cannot be actively engaged in the prosperity of the nation. And that's what she's really interested in, is placing girls in a position in which they can contribute to Ireland's prosperity. And in this, her novels are really feminist for their time. Her, and, and interestingly, like Mead, she's locating new girl and girls' opportunities in Ireland. Her girls find fulfillments, they also find marriageable potential through their development of socially engaged young women, and that in these novels is only available to them in Ireland. And for that, to me, she's extraordinary. What's interesting, though, is that these girls of Mead, Mulholland, Milligan, and Tynan, who take up space, are visible, audible, emotionally present, very popular don't seem to generate the same kind of literary daughters in the 20th century. Um, and that's due in large part to the oppressive climate of post-independence Ireland and a kind of more general distrust of that kind of emotionality of the teenage girl. This, however, is manifestly not the case in 21st century Ireland, where an exciting boom in children's and young adult publishing is giving space to numerous bold and brilliant girls. Although there have been novels for an Irish teenage readership, particularly since the 1980s, um, there's been a real energy in children's and YA publishing, um, due in large part to Louise O'Neill's success since the publication of her first novel, Only Ever Yours. Um, and that's marked a new phase in Irish YA writing. Um, so that's initiating a publishing climate in which Writers such as, and I'm going to leave, I'm going to obviously leave out writers because so many of them at the moment. But writers like Sarah Crossan, Sarah Moore Fitzgerald, um, Sarah Bannon, Elska Rascal, Sheena Wilkinson, Claire Hennessy, Deirdre Sullivan, Sarah Marie Griffin, lots of Sarahs, <laughs> Anna Carey, Catherine Doyle, Maura Fowley Doyle, and Sinead O'Hart have all come to prominence. Although some of those novels published for a teenage readership previously, so Claire Hennessy, for example, has published 13 YA books since 2000. It's in recent years that the Irish way novel has established its really visible presence. In a recent interview, Louise O'Neill stated proudly, to be honest, I just love teenage girls. There's something about that age that is so painful and so raw. God, I remember it so well. 
Teenage girls are just the best. That is why I get so angry when people make fun of fangirls. Teenage girls bring passion and a real sense of engagement to everything, whether that is books or bands. And it's that energy and engagement, it, that, 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 that's there in these turn-of-the-century Irish girls like Mead and Mulholland and Milligan. Some of the most feminist texts I've seen in Ireland recently are young adult novels, especially O'Neill's two novels. Only Ever Yours is a dystopic novel set in the near future in which female children are genetically manufactured, only male children are born naturally. And these Eves, as they're called, are kept in separate school, special schools in which they're indoctrinated in the beliefs of their appearance and submissive behaviour are their only means of worth. They're rated externally by their equivalent teenage boys. And the novel is a, it's a powerful commentary on internalised misogyny, the normalisation of sexism, and the ways in which girls' bodies become um, regulated as commodities. Her second novel, Asking For Us, continues these themes, but in a more realist setting of contemporary small-town Ireland, and it's got a focus on rape culture and the question of consent. The narrator, Emma, is gang-raped after a party, and photos and video footage of the assault are subsequently shared on social media. The novel details the effects on the psyche of living in a broader rape culture, as well as experiencing the brutal assault itself. Both novels are searing feminist critiques of our contemporary society and the dehumanisation of women within us. They should be required reading by everyone. O'Neill's novels are about, they're more about how our contemporary society makes it difficult for girls to be bold, rather than necessarily portraying bold girls, although I would say that she herself is an exemplary bold girl. But what's interesting about her novels is that they put the onus on us to be disruptive, brave, and unruly. The style and structure of her novels contributes to this. So what they do, these novels, is they immerse us in the mind of the teenage girls as they're forced to be compliant with the overt sexism of their cultures. And that effect is that the reader becomes deeply invested in the hope that justice might be served and that these characters might be given some degree of agency. However, this is slight spoilers as well, um, that hope is robustly denied in the novel's conclusions, producing, I think, as a result, powerful affects of anger, fury, and frustration. And what they do, I think, is they, they force the reader to examine their own behaviour and their own complicity in patriarchy. And they asked us to use that anger, that frustration, um, to be disruptive of those systems. Because young adult fiction is particularly interested in narratives about development and coming of age and difficult issues affecting identity formation and the relationships between the growing teenager and the social structures that are forming them, it's a genre that's really well suited to engaging and critiquing social, socioeconomic change. Um, YA scholar Roberta Seelinger Trites argues YA novels tend to interrogate social constructions, foregrounding the relationship between the society and the individual, rather than focusing on self and self-discovery, as children's literature does. Irish YA fiction is really exciting at the moment, and it's produced from and it's operating within a broader feminist and activist energy that's become apparent in post-recession Ireland. Anna Carey's 
wonderful novel, The Making of Molly, and her new novel, Molly on the March, which is out this year. These novels take us back to the time period of a novelist like Elsie Mead and Rose Mulholland's, and they feature unruly schoolgirls who get involved in the suffragette cause. <coughs> They're lovely. Um, Maura Fowley-Doyle, her YA novels, slightly different. They create this really interesting, magic, realist space of agency for the teenage girl. Her protagonists harness these kind of magical, realist energies in order to bring secrets to light, to heal wounded families, and to actually kind of affect the world around them. In her most recent novel, The Spellbook of the Lost and Found, her protagonists find a spellbook and use that spellbook to enact a spell to find lost things that has mixed results. But in many ways, the magic that works in a novel like this is the magic of writing, of language, of imagination, and of behaviours. One character explains the way this magic works. So your parents are married, right? Saying I do is a magic spell. They're just words like every other word. But said in a ritual with intent, it's a spell. When they named you, it was a spell. When they let you pick flowers and keep dried leaves, it was a spell. Your dolls came to life because of your spells. Your invisible friend, your dreams. And I want to finish with that note of magic because the collection of books I'm talking about and the collection of books that are featured in the wonderful exhibition um, in the long room of the old library, um, those collection of books featuring girls that change and affect the world around them, they're spell books of the lost and found. They're spell books that will give us access to unruly girls throughout history, girls who can offer new paradigms for a new generation of bold girls. What Derry Girls and all of these texts share is a taking seriously of the teenage girl's consciousness, allowing us to occupy that space and celebrating the energies of the bold girl as a force for change. Thank you.